scripture reading this morning will be taken from Acts chapter 18, verse 1, then verses 8 through 10. If you'd like to follow along in your pew Bibles, it'll be chap, uh, excuse me, page 985, 985. Acts 18, verse 1, and verses 8 through 10. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. The Lord said to Paul in the night by vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go go on speaking, but do not be silent. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us again, we welcome you. It encourages us by you being here, and we hope that we can encourage you. A beautiful fall morning to study one of the greatest priorities of the church. It's a priority that brings also perhaps the greatest joy. It's exciting to see people that want to be saved. It's exciting to think that we can be a part of a group of people that can carry a message that tells others how they can be saved. Think how painful it would be to know a cure for a terrible disease of sin, but yet not be allowed to share it with anyone. As a matter of fact, if you think about it, when someone tells you something that's great news and it's real exciting, it's kind of a downer when they close out that conversation by saying, but don't tell anyone. Oh, that's hard to do. Isn't it wonderful that the Lord gives us a wonderful plan of salvation, invites us to be saved, and then encourages us to rejoice, to be open about it, and to go and to share that with others? Warren Buffett the second wealthiest man in the world. He made an announcement a few months ago. It was the end of June that startled the world. It was no surprise to his children. He'd been telling them all along that of his $44 billion that he had acquired, that he wasn't leaving hardly any of it to his family. He believed that his purpose was on earth was greater than just one family. And he wanted to do something for mankind, for humanity. And so in New York City... The public library, he made an announcement. He would give at least $37 billion away. Now he proceeded to give $1 billion to each of his three children's foundations that they run to help, of course, good causes. But then he gave the majority of it to Bill Gates' foundation, which the primary goal is to find cures for the top 20 diseases in the world and especially to help poverty-stricken nations. Now, most of us, if we think about giving away more than 80% of what we're worth, would say, hats off. I admire that kind of generosity. And I know that oftentimes individuals can be misquoted and misrepresented And so I don't want this to sound like an attack on him. But during that time, an article online in the news says that this is what he stated that day. 
There is more than one way to get to heaven. But this is a great way, said Buffett. Now that one statement brings two things to mind. Is there more than one way to get to heaven? As we talk about salvation, can we say, hey, some need to be very religious, and if you're religious enough, you can get to heaven. Others need to be just very deep spiritual, really thinkers and individuals that try to commit their life to it. And if you can be deep enough spiritually, you can get to heaven. Others just need to be wealthy. And if you can acquire huge masses of wealth and then give it away, you can give your way to heaven. And this just happens to be a wonderful way to do it. Now, friends, we know that Generosity is not only wonderful, that it is scriptural, that it is a part of spiritual life. And what a wonderful coincidence that this morning during the worship hour, we're talking about salvation and the adults will go into their Bible classes in just a few minutes and we'll study about stewardship. And so both we find out are naturally spiritual topics. Yes, we need to be generous, but please note this. What does it mean to be saved? What does an individual need to do to be saved? And as we think about all this, I need to realize that I can't acquire my own definition of salvation and say, because I want to do this and because I've sacrificed so much to do this, that must be a part of salvation. We just read and had so capably read to us a text this morning about the church. Now keep in mind, we've been emphasizing throughout this study this quarter about the church, how that the church did begin in Jerusalem. And when the church was spread to other parts of the world, it wasn't that a new church was being started all the other places. It was congregations of the same church. And so as you plant that same seed over in Corinth, what is going to be taught, what is going to be preached, and what is going to be produced because of that preaching? Did you notice the text here that we read in Acts the 18th chapter? It was Paul going into Corinth. And when he preached the gospel, where did he begin? We began with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We know that from 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter. But notice the results of the hearers in verse 8. When Christmas, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all of his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were baptized. You see, now the church is established. Now the church is started there in Corinth. Why? Because of the preaching of the gospel. This may seem like such a given that we might overlook it, but this morning I'd like for us to kind of put the brakes on and slow down and look at something that we ought to never take for granted. When you go into a place and there's no church there and you want to begin a congregation of the Lord's church there, what are you going to preach the first Sunday? What are you going to emphasize strongly during the beginning and we better emphasize it all along the way? Friends, all throughout the Bible what we see is that when churches were beginning, you preach salvation. You preach Jesus and what man's response to Jesus ought to be. And what we find out is that the priority of salvation also produces great joy. Friends, you show me a congregation that is on fire for Jesus. You show me a congregation that's happy. A congregation that knows peace that passes understanding. A congregation that loves to come together and worship and loves to go out and live the Christian life. And I'll show you a congregation that believes in the importance of salvation every time. 
I don't believe there's an exception to that. As we think about this, I'd like for you to think with me, and we'll go through some screens kind of quickly here this morning. And you may want to be turning as we look at various passages in Acts. But I'd like for you to think with me first of just the priority and the joy of salvation. And Acts, the second chapter, what was it that was preached that day? Again, I know it's a given, but let's not just look over it this morning. Let's stop and observe this. What? Out of all the things that could have been preached at the beginning of the church, what was preached? How to become a part of God's family. How to become a part of the Lord's church. In other words, the beginning. He began with the fact in Acts the the second chapter in verse 21 that if they're going to be saved, they had to call upon the name of the Lord. They didn't know who the Lord was. So in 22, he revealed that it's Jesus of Nazareth that they crucified. And what was the result? In 41, those who gladly received the word were baptized. What do we see here? The beginning was salvation. What was the result? A lot of happiness, a lot of joy when individuals find out that they're saved. It brings me great joy to see individuals baptized into Christ. But you know what is always the result? Whether it's in front of a large audience or if there's just a few of us in here, we have stood down in this area of the auditorium hundreds of times and heard individuals say, this is the happiest day of my life. I am so thankful that today took place. My life has changed and I've never felt this good. Friends, we can't talk about genuine, pure salvation without talking about joy. The two go hand in hand. When we look at Acts the 8th chapter in verse 5, you remember this is when persecution had set into the church and so they scattered. But when they scattered, they took the gospel with them. When they preached, what did they preach as they were scattered? Well, in verse 5 of the 8th chapter, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and he preached Christ to them. And then in verse 8, there was great joy in that city. Now, we also read in that same paragraph there that many of those in Corinth the men and uh, Samaria, the men and women were baptized. But do you see here the preaching of what? Jesus, the plan of salvation. And what was the result? This city was happy. This city was alive and vibrant again because they had something that was genuine, something that makes a difference in life. When we go deeper into the 8th chapter, we see another story of conversion. This is where the Holy Spirit sends Philip. And in verse 35, he began in the Scriptures preaching Jesus to him. And then after he was baptized in 39, it closes by saying, and he went on his way rejoicing. Some could look at that and say, I wonder which man is talking about there. Well, it's probably talking about that the Ethiopian eunuch went on his way rejoicing. But friends, it doesn't matter because I can assure you that both men left there that day rejoicing. I can assure you that Philip left thinking to himself, I'm so thankful the Holy Spirit sent me that way. I'm so thankful I had that opportunity. What a joy it is to be able to talk to others about salvation. Look with me, if you will, to Acts the 10th chapter. Let's just mention a few here in a row. In Acts the 10th chapter, remember this is where Peter was sent to Cornelius. And we mentioned this a few weeks ago. He was so uncomfortable because he was a Jew and he was going in to a Gentile's home. But do you remember that once he taught him, he saw that the Holy Spirit fell upon them just like it did in, in, upon the Jews in Acts 2. And do you remember he taught them about salvation and he taught them about their need to be baptized into Christ? And this is something, if you've ever been on one of our mission trips, and I know a lot of you have, you're going to say, you know that's so true. Do you remember what Cornelius did? And then when we go over to Acts 16, you remember what Lydia did? After they were baptized, they begged them to stay. Can, 
just visualize it. Cornelius sees Peter perhaps about to round things up, and he, he thinks he's about to walk out the door, and he says, whoa, 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 won't you stay just a few more days? In other words, he was excited about what he'd learned. He was excited about salvation, but he knew and he wanted to learn so much more. And can you imagine Lydia? Lydia and her household were baptized. She said to Paul and to Luke and to Timothy and to others that were with them, says, please, please, stay in my house. Why did they, they want these individuals that, that just a few hours ago would have been complete strangers? Why did they want them to stay in their house? Because they realized these were the individuals that brought salvation and their life had been changed and they were so excited. You remember the Philippian jailer? Paul was there at midnight and, and he was singing praises in jail and then the earthquake breaks out and the man realizes or believes that he probably has lost all of his prisoners. That would be an execution sentence for him. And so he's ready to take his own life and they stop him and he asks an important question. What must I do to be saved? And he was told about Jesus. And that night, that very same hour, he and his family were baptized. And then we read about him rejoicing. He and his family rejoicing. Why? It's always the highest priority. Friends, if my vision of the church is that we need to get involved in this activity and we need to push this area And we get ourselves so scattered that we lose sight of the number one priority. Are you saved? When a visitor walks through this door, if we truly emulate the New Testament church, what's our greatest concern for them? Oh, I hope they'll come and be a part of our Bible class. Oh, I hope that they'll bring their children to this activity this afternoon. Oh, I hope that they'll come and be a part of of this workshop that we're having. Friends, all those things are wonderful. It'd be perfectly natural that if we're excited about a particular ministry or an area that, that we would want others to be involved. But if we would do all that to the exclusion of concern for their soul, we've missed the whole point of the church. The church is made up of the saved. Individuals that step out of the world and they're saved by Jesus Christ and because of that they're added to the church. And so when we talk about wanting people to become a part of the church, we're not saying we hope that you'll start attending worship. We hope that you'll start bringing your family and just acting like one of us. When we talk about people becoming a part of the church, we're talking about them stepping out of a lost and condemned condition and stepping into a right relationship with God and being saved. Look with you, if you will, with me to Matthew the 7th chapter. In Matthew the 7th chapter, we see that Jesus even reveals to us how important it is to make sure that we are clear of what we mean whenever we talk about salvation. Please note this, and the reason I want to, I don't have time to emphasize it with time, but I want to just say it, and I hope it strikes a chord with you. This morning, just because you're religious, this morning, just because you are sincere, does not mean that you're saved. 
In other words, when we talk about salvation, we have to come to God on God's terms. And tonight, we'll talk about grace and faith. Is it grace? Is it faith? Or is it grace through faith? It's important that we understand what God has done for us, but it's also important that we understand what our response is to be. And so as we look here, notice, of course, this is a Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus' teachings. This is towards the close of the Sermon on the Mount. And look at Matthew seven twenty-one through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father in heaven. So just crying out a prayer, Lord, save me, He's saying, that doesn't mean that you're going to be saved, even though someone might sincerely say that. And then in 22, many will say to me in that day. Now, he's picturing a scene of judgment here. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now here, he described people that were very religious. I assure you that if they were your neighbor, you would describe them as some of the most religious people that you've ever met. These were people that would go out and teach in the name of Jesus. These were people that would go out and try to fight Satan in the name of Jesus. These were people that did, now the Lord said, many wonderful works. Their life was full of wonderful things they did. And if you ask them, why are you doing this? They would say, because I'm doing it in the name of Jesus. Friends, I didn't say this. Jesus says, I'm going to say to many people like that, depart from me on the day of judgment. I never knew you. In other words, he's not saying your religion was wrong. He's saying your plan of salvation Let me rephrase that. He's saying, my plan of salvation, you have never obeyed. I can't come to Jesus on my terms of salvation and then practice a form of religion and some way at the end, God is going to overlook the fact that I disobeyed Him in the beginning but tried to obey Him in the middle. You've heard me give the illustration before of the marathon. The individual that jumps in in the middle and gets so excited because he's finished the marathon, but yet he didn't start, and so he can't finish right if he starts wrong. That's the teaching here. The teaching is we can't ignore the plan of salvation and then jump in the middle and start teaching in the name of Jesus. And I go to church three times a week and I'm very serious about my Bible study and I go out and I do good things in the name of Jesus and I'm serious about avoiding Satan in my life and I encourage others to avoid Satan. Here's the question. Are you saved? Oh, that offends me. Do you know how religious I am and you're going to ask me if I'm saved? Yes. Absolutely yes. I've baptized more adults in this water that believed that they were saved until we studied than not. Why? Because if we take all of the religions today under the broad umbrella of Christianity, of what they teach about the plan of salvation, it's not what God teaches. There's nowhere in the Scriptures a sinner's prayer. There's nowhere in the Scriptures... Invite God into your heart. There's nowhere in the Scriptures God's done His part. There's nothing you do. Those kind of doctrines that are prevalent, that are the majority of the teaching, they're not found in the Scriptures. Now, are there religious people? Yes, there's a lot of religious people in America. 
how many of those religious people are saved? Now, I'm not suggesting that you and I need to slip on God's boots and that we need to start being the final judge. But I am suggesting to you today that there's only one way to the Father. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And so we need to make sure that what God and Christ have said about salvation is what I have done in order to be saved. You see, this topic this morning is not to question whether or not we've been sincere or even whether or not we've been religious. It's to question whether or not we've done what the Lord has said. Over these next few minutes, I would like for you to look with me at several screens here as we go through several things pretty quickly. One of the things that we have to do is we have to be a believer. Do you remember in Acts the 16th chapter, the Philippian jailer, he didn't know anything about Jesus Christ. So when he asked what to do to be saved, naturally that's where these preachers begun. They began by teaching. They began by teaching you have to believe in Jesus. They taught him and his family about Jesus. And later that evening, that same hour, they were baptized. In John 8 and 24, Jesus said, Therefore I say to you that you will die in your sins. If you believe not that I am He, you will die in your sins. Jesus, how important is it that we believe that you are the Son of God, the only way to the Father? He'd say it's like this. If you don't believe it, there's no hope. Was Jesus being ugly? Was He shaking a fist at them? Let me ask you this. If there is a person drowning in a pool and you are the only person standing near that pool. There is no one else in a mile around you, and that person is drowning. And you reach out with a, with a hook there, and you offer them a way to be saved. And they look up at you and they say, I don't want you to save me. I want someone else to. And you look around and you say, look, if you don't grab this hook, there is no one else to save you. You will die ignoring this salvation. Now, are you being hateful to them? Are you being uh, uh, lacking compassion towards them? Or are you just stating the facts? What's Jesus doing here? If they didn't want to believe in Jesus, could He say, Oh, well, there's going to be a lot of other Eastern religions develop uh, soon. Trust me, I can prophesy the future. So you can just pick one of those if you want. There's a lot of ways to the Father. You know, that's the very common conversation in the religious world today. Oh, well, there's a lot of Eastern religions that they worship an almighty God too. And if they approach God through a prophet or through someone else other than Jesus Christ, won't God accept them? Did Jesus tell the truth or did he tell a lie? What did Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is saying, if you don't believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Friends, this morning, do we believe that Jesus is the only way. I can't be saved. I cannot be saved if I do not believe who Jesus says that He is. But also we have to, in this belief, it's not just an intellectual or historical type of belief where we just believe facts. It's a belief that changes our life. 
And in the scriptures, we call this repentance. Look in Acts 2. We could go through many passages in Acts. Remember in Acts 2, those individuals had crucified Jesus. They wanted to know what to do to be saved. And they were told to repent. In Acts 17 and 30, at the end of of Paul's sermon, he had preached to all those people that had believed there in Athens in, in idolatrous worship. And at the end of that sermon, he says, Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Acts 26. We read in verse 20, at the end of verse 20, Paul here is giving an account of things that he preached. He's talking to Agrippa and to Bernice and to others that are there. And he gives an account of things that he preached. And he says at the end of verse 20, And they should repent, turn to God, and do the works befitting repentance. What is repentance? It's the hardest part of salvation. For most anyone, repentance is the hardest part of salvation. Because it's saying, Lord, I turn away from self. I turn away from all that I've been and I want to start thinking different. I want my heart to be set different. I want my actions to be different. I'm going to think differently. I'm going to speak differently. I'm going to be different from the inside and out. Everything now, Lord, is going to be about you and your will. Repentance, a turn, a change. Are we willing to make that change? If we are coming to the Lord, we must do that. But notice this. We can't be closet Christians. As we look at confession in Matthew the 10th chapter in 32 and 33, Jesus says if we will confess Him on earth, He'll confess us before the Father which is in heaven. But He also says if we won't confess Him, He won't confess us before the Father which is in heaven. Now this reminds us of Acts 8 and 37. And I know there's a little bit of debate and some of the newer translations do not even have this verse. But this is where the, the, Ethiop, uh, where the Ethiopian eunuch says... Philip says to him, if you believe with all your heart that you may, he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Why do we have that confession there? We have the confession because he's not ashamed, because he believes. And someone says, well, that's ridiculous. If someone believed, they would surely confess. You know the text that was read this morning? One of the things that you have to love about Crispus is that he was a ruler in the synagogue and he made his stand with, with Jesus. Many of the rulers in the synagogue would not do that. Look in John the 12th chapter, and we'll have a screen for it if you want to look at it there. John 12 and 42. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in Him, talking about believing in Jesus, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess Him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. Now here's the real meat of why they wouldn't confess Him. For they loved the praise of men more than they loved the praise of God. They were going to have to give up their religious position. They were really even going to have to give up their religion. Probably not all of their families were converted to Christianity, so they probably would have to give up a close relationship with their family. They're going to have to give up that close relationship with the Jewish community. That probably would also affect them financially. Friends, let me ask you something this morning. And I'll start on these toes and we'll work our way around. In order for you and I to live a Christian life for the rest of our life, if we had to change our religion, if our family disowned us, and we had to move away from Mount Juliet and find some place that would tolerate us as a Christian, would we be willing to confess Jesus? That's why you have to love Christmas. That's why you have to love those Christians that we read about in Acts 2 and Acts 3 and Acts 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 because when it gets to Acts 8, the persecution is so great. They had to pick up and they had to move. But they wouldn't stop confessing Jesus Christ. Now, in Acts 2 and 38, we read about repent and be baptized. When we read about in Acts 8 and 12, 
we read that the men and women of Samaria were baptized. In Acts 16 and 33 about the Ethiopian eunuch says, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. In Acts 19, we read about 12 men that had been baptized in John's baptism. Now this was at the point in time that Christ's baptism was being taught. They had a religious baptism. Well, surely if it was a religious baptism, and after all, even in the past, it's what was taught, that's good enough, right? No. Notice here in this passage, it doesn't even, says that, it doesn't even say that they were rebaptized. It says, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. What's the point? We never read in the Scriptures of someone being rebaptized. But we do read of individuals that had been baptized by religious baptisms that found out about Christ's baptism for the remission of sins and they decided to be baptized into Christ. You see, the point is, just because someone has been sincere and just because they've had a baptism doesn't mean that they're saved. And we read in Acts 22 and 16... When Saul was told by Ananias, what are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. The next slide you see Romans 6 and 3 and Galatians 3 and 27. Notice how both of those speak of baptism into Christ. Now note this. If we are in the world, sin is separating us from God. We hear that there is a Savior and we make our decision. I really believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. I'm not ashamed of that. I'm willing to confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and I'm willing to repent. I'm willing to change and and to become one of God's. What do I do for those sins to be washed away? What do I do to step from the world and into Christ? Baptism is that final step that places us into Christ. That's why there is so much of a priority on the preaching of Jesus, urging folks to be a believer, to repent, to confess, and to be baptized. That's why it's such joy. That's why there's great, great rejoicing when one does that. I want you to know something. You've heard it said many times. We're going to extend the Lord's invitation. We're going to do that right now, but I want you to really think what we're saying there. We're not going to say that a group of men have sat down and said, this is the way you come to God. We're not going to say, you say this sinner's prayer, because that's never found in the Scriptures. We're not going to come up with phrases that that God never said. Let's go back to what the church talked about. And let's be that same church. We've just studied what the church preached about how to be saved. This morning, if you're not saved, you ought to make it a priority in your life. And you ought to rejoice about it. This morning, if, if you came here believing that you were saved, but now you have questions and you want to study further, please let us know. We would love to sit down, not because we have it all together and we're perfect. we just like to sit down and study Scriptures together because we're searching and we're striving to grow and striving to become what God wants us to be. 
hopefully just like you are. 